And there is no doubt, even like it, it has changed us, whether we realize it now or not, there, there will be some, you know, long-term consequences. I think in, in every way, the way we think, the way we see things, how we behave, like, you know, there's going to be a bit of readjustment to kind of open up and be completely normal again, I guess. Bonjour tout le monde. Uh, I'm going to do this whole podcast in bad French. No, I'm not really, but I am going to introduce Pierre Geoffroy uh, from Abioco and Hampton Wine Store um, to Dirty Linen. Welcome, Pierre. Hi, Danny. How are you? Well, I'm really like I'm good. I just feel like I'm I just in post lockdown swirl and uh, sometimes I feel really elated. Sometimes I feel just so tired. Uh, I often feel like I've got too many thoughts in my brain and I just don't quite know where to reach for the next one. Um, but, but I think overall I'm feeling optimistic. What about you? Uh, much the same. Like I think, you know, initially with the announcement that restaurants are going to reopen, uh, It, it happened, I guess, so spontaneously that there was an initial feeling of, I think, anxiety. Uh, and, you know, just being a little bit scared because it's once again, we were going to have to adapt not one but two businesses uh, into, you know, the unknown and outdoor dining. And, you know, it just kind of, in, in a way, I guess, it becomes quite hard to have to adapt so many times, which is what, you know, everyone that's running a business through the pandemic and that's been affected has had to do. Um, but I think now that we have, you know, essentially I think that the key thing and what I what we try to do is essentially just to write a list of what needs to be done, work through that list one thing at a time uh, to get to that goal and, you know, finally being able to do that and get patrons in here has had its rewards. Uh, in the sense, it's very much so what we know how to do. Like we're not, we've never done takeaway. We did it for the time that we had to. Uh, but you know, actually running a restaurant, even if it's limited and it's mostly outdoors, uh, it's still you know doable and viable for us. So we feel pretty lucky in that sense now. But you know, definitely, we're definitely exhausted. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's funny, you know, you've said you've said so much that I want to refer back to um, and I think that's sort of what it's like at the moment. There's just so much packed into every moment and even saying that seems funny because how much can you really pack into a lockdown where you're supposed to not be doing very much but somehow it's very occupying and as you said, you know, there's so much change that you've had to deal with over the past seven or eight months, um, that there's just a lot that swirls around your mind. And I guess, you know, in Melbourne, we've had this massive roller coaster of lockdown one, a brief reopening, lockdown two, which, you know, seemed to go on for a long time. But even looking back now on the second lockdown, if I think about the fact that we were, it, we, we were subject to a curfew, like that even just seems quite surreal from this point. I actually can't quite believe that, that was our lives for a time. Mm, absolutely. And I think it's something something we've never experienced. Well, personally, like I've never, you know, the only other times we've had a curfew has been during war times. Um, I, I didn't think in my lifetime that, you know, we would experience anything like it. Like, and I was, um, I just remember actually 
you know, when the curfew kicked in and we were doing takeaway at both venues at this stage and pretty much, you know, one of the things I liked to do was pretty much get work done, do deliveries, but by about 8.30, everything kind of wraps up and, you know, I'm, I'm back home by about nine o'clock and generally like that's when I would get home and probably take the dog for a walk. And I just remember thinking, you know, if, if I actually do that, I'm, you know, committing a crime essentially and just thinking just how crazy that was. So it's pretty full on. I would stand at my door, you know, lock the screen door in the evening and look outside and just think I'm not allowed to go out there. And, you know, when you just feel like I, I normally feel like I'm such a, you know, I'm part of Melbourne and Melbourne's part of me and, you know, the, the fact that I couldn't go out at night, I couldn't go beyond my 5K, um, it's just, it, we're going we're gonna to look back on it. We're not really going to know how it's affected us, how it's changed us, and, and I think especially how it's, how it's impacted what we're, we're really going to value as we move forward in this crazy world. I think we're, there's going to be layers and layers of this experience that we'll, we'll keep, yeah, we'll keep sort of peeling back or layering up it's yeah really really interesting uh, definitely yeah yep. <laughs> so yeah um all you did was ask me how I was and it's just suddenly got all deep and philosophical but I feel like that's part of the pandemic as well it's been a lot about you know working out what's really important what we what um yeah who we who we really are oh definitely massively and there is no doubt even like it, it has changed us as much as um, whether we realise it now or not, there, there will be some, you know, long-term consequences. I think in, in every way, the way we think, the way we see things, how we behave. Like, like I'm, I'm finding it, even though, you know, now we're allowed to travel to 25Ks, I probably haven't still gone out of my 5K radius. Like, I'm just so used to that. I've just kind of stayed stayed in that and stuck to those rules. And I think it's, you know, there's going to be a bit of readjustment to kind of open up and be completely normal again, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with you. I, I, um, I'm south side and I did go over north side over to Fitzroy uh, last week on the first day of opening. And I felt sort of giddy with excitement, but also sort of dangerously unmoored you know like I um and it was exciting and it felt like I was seeing faces that I just hadn't seen you know driving along streets and they were even going along Punt Road it was it was very familiar even I even kind of loved the traffic for a while um but it yeah it was this strange um clash of familiarity and absolute strangeness uh and I, yeah, I think if I think about going beyond the 25k when we're allowed to next week, going to regional Victoria, that's almost going to feel like I don't know, escaping or uh... it is a bit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's really really strange. It's strange how quickly you can adapt and get used to things. Yeah, it really is. Well, set the scene for us, uh, for people who don't know your two businesses, one of which you cleverly opened in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and it was one of the few restaurants that I visited in that sliver of time in winter when we were, were allowed to go out. Uh, but yeah, just tell us a bit about, about yourself and about the, about the businesses. 
Yes, so pretty much um, I've got two businesses. The first one I opened with my business partners, uh, who is uh, Glenn Mill and Jared Amos. So the three of us essentially worked together for quite a few years at um, Jacques Remond, which was where we kind of had, you know, learned the core of um, our skill sets. And um, we stayed friends, you know, once we left Jacques Remond and all of us kind of went our own way and went traveling and worked at other places. And um, pretty much after that, once we all kind of settled back in Melbourne, we just kept catching up on our days off, like on our hospitality weekend, which was usually like a Sunday night or Monday night. And we'd have dinner parties and cook for each other. And we pretty much all knew that we would, you know, at some point we're ready to do our own thing. And the reality was that none of us individually had enough capital to be able to set off on our own. Uh, but we re pretty quickly realized that we all kind of had the same dream. And if we actually collectively got together and um, put our money together, we had the potential to be able to do something. And um, that's pretty much how Hampton One Co came about. Glenn actually is the one that found the building and we'd all grown up in Bayside and we knew there was a bit of shortage in terms of, um, you know, bars and restaurants and places which were a bit classier and, you know, doing tapestry food and that sort of stuff. So we essentially, um, yeah, signed a lease, jumped into it without really knowing too much about what it took to open up a business. and you know, just got stuck into it. And then we opened Hampton in uh, December 2015, uh, which was good. So we've had that one up and running for about five years. So it's more of a European, uh, you know, casual wine bar with tapestry European dishes with a bit of a modern twist to them. And um, more recently, we um, ventured into our second business, which is located in Hyatt, which is called Abioko Pasta and Wine Bar. And um, as you said, we actually went and opened that one after the first lockdown and pretty much threw the doors open, uh, you know, to a lovely Italian pasta bar with all the pastas made in-house. Uh, and we essentially just went trading with limited numbers. So we could only do 20 in the indoor area. We could do a few in the, in the front bar section. And um, we did that for about two weeks and then we went into another lockdown. <laughs> oh, my God. You just, just worked out how to put the food on plates and suddenly you had to put it in boxes. Essentially, yeah, that was it. Wow. I mean, that's really a lot to deal with. I mean, opening a business is so much to take on anyway. And um, I suppose to open it in the optimism of our first reopening, was it felt pretty exciting. I was there and, you know, it was it was it was good but um yeah then everything sort of closed back down again what tell me about you know you obviously had staff in both businesses tell me how that all worked for you uh so we pretty much we had yeah it's definitely staff at both venues so we had the head chef at hampton who's um from brazil and she's working with us full-time. We had also Sonia, who's our manager at Hampton, who's been with us since we opened the doors. And we actually used to work with her at Jacques Ramond as well. Uh, so we had her as well. And then for the new venture, we had Pietro in the kitchen, who's Italian. Uh, also had front of house, so James, who is also an ex-Jacques Ramond staff. 
so he was the full-time manager and is said to become the, f the face of the business very much. And um, yeah, and then we had Glenn, Jared and myself. And um, yeah, we just kind of decided that we would need to keep everything going because a lot of our staff uh, weren't going to be el eligible for JobKeeper. The new business was actually too new. So because we didn't have the tracking history, we weren't able to get anything from JobKeeper. So essentially, we just decided that we just had to keep doing whatever we had to do to keep it going. So essentially, Hampton, we turned into a provador at the start. And then um, Abiyoko was just doing takeaway pasta. And I became a delivery driver. Uh, and we just kind of put our heads down and hoped that we'd be busy enough that we could keep paying everyone. So, And did you manage that? We did manage that, which was great. So I That's think, amazing. I think the, at the worst stage, we did have a, a couple of weeks that did get pretty slow. So when that happened, essentially, we did have a chat to... Uh, a couple of the staff and said, look, essentially we need to, what, what do you need to live in the sense of paying your rent, you know, food, all your bills and everything. And we'll essentially like, you know, if we can't match JobKeeper because the businesses are struggling too much, we'll make sure we can, you know, support you enough that you don't have to have the worry of not being able to pay rent and, you know, essentially live. So it was a bit touch and go at times, but... Yeah, it is full on. But yeah, like we were saying before, it's like that life becomes just really essential, doesn't it? It's really stripped back. It's like, what do you need to live? I mean, that is never a question that you would think you would need to, you know, ask a staff member. No, absolutely not. But I think that was the reality of it. And I guess you just, for us, it was very much so a case that we wanted, you know, we wanted to retain everyone. We wanted to stand by them when times were not ideal and pretty tough but then you know we can all thrive on the other end of this and I guess now it, it very much so feels like you know if anything in many ways I guess it's, it has brought us closer like we we probably you know went into the lockdown as more work colleagues and I guess we've kind of come out of it in some sense as a bit more of a family in some ways. Wow. That's that's really beautiful. So do you feel like there's um, there's that real web of loyalty among all all the team now? Oh, there's yeah, there's no doubt about it. You can you can just feel it like when you're at work and working with everyone, and you know everyone's very you know now a lot more optimistic and just very keen to work hard and for you know the business the both businesses to do well and succeed and and that's exactly what it's doing you know and I mean we've also had staff members that have really you know with their own initiative stepped up um, an example would be we have um, a girl that actually started with us at Hampton um, pretty much once we reopened after the first lockdown and um, she essentially started working with us because she wanted to learn more about wines and um, she didn't really when we went into the second lockdown she didn't really she was very humble about it, but she did say to us, she's like, I do have some cocktail experience. If you want, I can, you know, put a few cocktails together and we can see if we can sell them for takeaway. And little did we know she'd actually worked with some of the, you know, amazing bartenders in Southeast Asia and her cocktail knowledge was phenomenal. 
and to the to the point that I think it was the last Saturday before we lifted restrictions, we sold, I think it was close to about 150 cocktails, uh, just between four and seven o'clock as takeaways. So like that just lifted the business. You know, suddenly cocktails was doing about 50% of sales. Wow. Which was amazing. So full credit to the stuff. Yeah. Oh, it was great. That's so good. You know, one of the things that seems to be, have been a bit of a feature of the pandemic is that those neighbourhood restaurants that are really well supported by locals have done better than city restaurants that depend on people in offices. Abiyoko was so new. I mean, how did Hyatt, and I'm, I'm really thrilled to hear that you were able to keep everybody on and, and um, through the takeaway, what, do you think... Like, how did Hyatt sort of take you into its arms and support you through the pandemic? Uh, you definitely felt it that because we didn't have the track record that Hampton had. So Hampton straight away had, you know, regulars and the whole community really getting right behind it from the get-go. Uh, Abiyoko, I guess, was a, a lot slower because we, we just didn't get a chance to really cement ourselves in the community for very long. It was only a couple of weeks that we were trading for. So that was definitely, you know, an obstacle that we that we definitely had. Um, but then I guess what we try to do is essentially, you know, just make our food more accessible through, you know, a better ordering platform online, um, trying to do cocktails as well, which Emily, uh, the bartender from Hampton, was batching up at Hampton and sending down to us for us to sell. Uh, it was, I guess, like we just didn't stop trying to do new things, trying to find ways to make more money. Uh, then we started doing like, you know, cook at home boxes. We just constantly tried new things and added on top of what we were doing to just essentially get more trade. And I think that determination just kind of pushed it across the line to be able to keep everyone on, to make enough money to you know, pay all the staff and what we needed to pay and just to be able to survive, really. Wow. So let's talk about reopening. Um, and, you know, you said at the start it's kind of an alarming prospect when you first hear about it. Uh, tell me about that process and what it's been like to get customers back through the doors. Yes. Yeah, so, oh, God, it's just a lot of adapting once again so pretty much I had it in my mind that when we would come out of restrictions essentially we would go back to what trading was like um, you know before the second lockdown so which was 20 people inside of the dining room uh, but once again it was changed so now it's 10 people maximum in one space so essentially everything just had to be readapted once again so it's just you needed to tweak your reservation system so that it reflected that uh, you need needed to update your menus to whatever wines were now available and you know new vintage vintages would have changed and ev everything just had to we had to go through everything and just adapt every step of the business essentially so it was a lot quite a lot of work but I think you know everyone came to work super early we just wrote down what had to be done and just worked our way through the list one step after another. So one person would focus on getting outdoor furniture ordered, uh, you know, just everything that had to, to be done to be able to reopen. And then we ended up actually doing like a staggered reopening. 
So Hampton Wine Co. we opened on Thursday, and that was the reason for that was essentially we didn't open on the Wednesday because we just couldn't be ready by that day. But we did open Hampton on the the following day on the Thursday. And Jared, who's the head chef and one of the three owners, was in the kitchen in there with Maria, a Brazilian chef, to essentially go through the whole menu with her that night. And then the next day on the Friday night, Jared was back at Abioco and that's when we threw those doors open and, you know, had a full restaurant with the restrictions, just doing two sittings, uh, which were both completely full. Uh, because obviously everyone's been very keen to get back out and eat out again. And uh, I think that there's been a bit of pressure from that as well, in the sense that, you know, like the the rush of people trying to get bookings and be so being so frantic about getting back into restaurants is in some ways quite similar to the franticness that we saw of, you know, woolly shelves not having any toilet paper. Like it's, it's, I've never seen people trying to get bookings so aggressively, I guess, in some ways, because they are so keen to get back out. So, uh, just every channel that people can potentially reach out to you is just overloaded. So you'll, you'll, you know, essentially Dan was still making the announcement and the phones were just ringing while he's doing the announcement. Emails are coming in. Your socials, you know, your phone's going off because Instagram's getting messages every, you know, 10 seconds and it just went crazy. Like, so anyway, essentially we just kind of, you know, let it all kind of die down a bit. And then after that, we just promoted that the reservation system was now up and running and for people to jump back on because it was just too overwhelming to have to go through every single phone call or reach every person individually it's and it's not not a case that we didn't want to do it but it was more of a case if it's it's okay we've got three days to open we need to focus our energy on just getting the restaurant ready like we can't you know spend a whole day trying to chase everyone up it's just not how we can use our time essentially it's not the best use of time yeah i mean you don't want no one to reach out, right? Oh, yeah, big time. <laughs> Don't want no one to call. Big time. Um, so, I mean, it's great that there's that enthusiasm, but then it's like, yeah, how do you sort of channel it into in a way that um, is actually, uh, yeah, practical for getting people into the restaurant at the right time? I heard something crazy um, from somebody uh, this morning that they were offered $500 <gasps> to let a group of people into their restaurant. Wow. Like, whoa. So people are desperate. Oh, massively. Yeah, it's really intense. Yeah. Um, so what about once people have got their reservation? I mean, have you found that people are amenable to the the, the restrictions you've got in terms of, you know, they have to clear the table at a certain time, um, that they uh, need to stay seated? What, what's, what's the sort of customer behaviour been like? It's generally speaking, it is pretty good. Like I'd say the, the vast majority of people are absolutely doing the right thing and being conscious that, you know, this is not essentially potentially not over and that we still have a part to play in staying COVID safe. So there's, you know, for the most part, there's no problem. People come in, they've got their mask, we take them to the table, explain to them that once they're at the table, then they can remove their mask. But if they had to go to the toilet or 
you know, move around the venue, they need to pop it back on. And everyone's, you know, they're so happy to be able to not cook for themselves and to be served by someone and to enjoy a meal that they are respecting. I think in, in many ways it somewhat resets the rules and it's given restaurateurs an, an opportunity to be like, okay, these these are now the rules and this is how our restaurant works and you have to respect that because it, at the end of the day, it is our house and that's how people have received it for the most part. I do think there's, there's a few people that are like well and truly over the lockdown. So we do, we've had a couple of people come in and, you know, not wearing a mask and they just want to go back to everything being normal. Um, and in our case, it's just a case of telling them that it's, you know, what they have to do politely, of course. And usually people are pretty understanding that and and do it. Like we haven't had any backlash or any anyone argue or anything like that, which is good. So fingers crossed. I'm sure it'll stay that way. Yeah. And do you have a minimum spend or and do you take credit card details? How are you how are you managing that side of things? Uh we're not. So we're pretty much just going on, you know, like trusting people to do the right thing. Um obviously if you know it gets to so far so good, if it does get to a point where that does become an issue and we get you know, you, you can't have a table of six not show in a space dedicated to ten people and lose that much revenue, obviously. So it's it's the kind of thing that it's like let's let's see if people do the right thing. If they don't, then we'll you know adapt accordingly and take credit card details and and so on. But so far we haven't had to do that, which is great. Yeah, that's really good, um, Pierre. I'd love to just sort of reach back to the Jacques Raymond history and ask you to draw a bit of a through line from that um, that grand contemporary fine dining setting, very wine focused, quite formal. Uh, and can you draw a line through to the more, um, I guess, the very accomplished but more casual dining that you're offering today? And then continue with this project and look into the future and have a little bit of a stab about where you think Melbourne dining is is going. Can you sort of draw that draw that history for us? Yes, yeah, so if, I guess the Jacques Ramond years for all three three of us owners was such a formative period of our careers. Like I, I think for us to be able to work at a restaurant that was then, you know, one of the only, I think when I worked, I was there for seven years altogether. I think Jared was there for about five and Glenn would have been there for about five or six years as well. So essentially we were quite young, you know, probably early 20s, uh, and I guess that's where we very much so, you know, got moulded into the hospitality workers that we then went on to to become. And it was, um, you know, a time where we're surrounded by amazing people to work with, such as Chris Young, who was Metro D there for quite a long time and, you know, has won many awards for his amazing skills. And, you know, we had Natalie Ramond, uh, who was the head sommelier, and she you know, eventually passed on that knowledge to me and Glenn over many years. Uh, and then there was Jacques, who, you know, such a big personality. Like, I think, you know, in Melbourne, for me anyway, like, he was really the chef's chef. And, you know, he was always there. He was always in the kitchen. Uh, his attention to detail was second to none. And he's a perfectionist. And, 
So I guess when you when you learn in um, in that setting, it's it does set the standard quite high. Uh, and I think the way we've kind of moved forward uh, as now you know we go into our own businesses is essentially we we didn't want to do fine dining, but we do find in a way that you know our places are definitely more casual, but there is still that element of you know, all school service, really looking after people and being hospitable, like we were taught by the Ramons. Uh, you know, it, it's almost like there's this aspect of fine dining that we just can't shake off. Like if we pour a glass of Pinot, it has to be in a Pinot Noir glass. It can't just be in a regular stem and, you know, and I don't think that's a, a bad thing at all. Like I think you can offer you know, more casual dining in terms of your setting, how you present your food, uh, but still have standard that it should be extremely delicious and the best food that you can possibly produce and to give the best service that you can possibly give and, you know, create a pretty amazing experience without being a fine dining restaurant, essentially. Mm. I mean, do you do you think that there's a place for those restaurants? I mean, I've, I've, I've heard different theories and I've moulded over myself, you know, as we come through the pandemic, fingers crossed, um, and we go, you know, there's obviously some people have got less money. Many people have luckily retained their jobs. Um, you know, we're going to lose a lot of restaurants, unfortunately. I just, I just wonder, you know, where is it going to fall? You know, is it going to fall to the lower end? Is it going to be crowded in the middle as it, as it was, um, you know, pre-pandemic? Uh, is there going to be more of a place for those special occasion restaurants because we appreciate dining so much more and we are willing to spend for those special experiences? What, what do you think, Pierre? I think, look, I do think there'll always be room for top restaurants like your Atticas and Bray. Um, you know, there, I think there'll always be enough people that have the financial stability to be able to support and go to these restaurants. And I think also they're special occasion restaurants. So, you know, people might save a long time to be able to dine at those places. And I do think a lot of them will be fine and will survive. If if anything, there might be maybe a fewer of them. Uh, and I do think that, you know, moving forward, and that's the way for me that restaurants have gone for a long way, is in, in a sense, restaurants have kind of tweaked that if people want to just come in and spend, you know, $40 a head, they can. But if they want to go all out and spend $200 a head, they can also do that. And I guess, you know, now I think um, it's going to be a case of um, restaurants are going to be more open to uh, turning tables, doing multiple sittings and becoming a little bit crafty in that regards um, to make it work, essentially. I, I think in the lower end, I think that will always survive. I think there will always be room for, you know, your cheaper style of restaurant, whether it's your faux restaurants on Victoria Street or, you know, your takeaway kind of places. So, yeah, if anything, I think it'll just be a reduction on the top end and people may be a little bit more cautious of how they spend their money. Yeah, I tell you what, I did drive down Victoria Street the other night and it was 
dire. Like so many businesses look permanently closed. It's really oh, God. looking pretty tragic. I really hope that um, some, yeah, there's some life comes back to that strip. But, um, you know, it, yeah, there is, there are so many people reopening and that's so wonderful. Obviously it's not simple to reopen. It's, you know, it's not financially viable, you know, without uh, government support for a lot of businesses. Um, but there are some businesses that sadly we are not going to welcome back. And um, yeah, I think we'll see, we'll, we'll see businesses um, tumbling uh, certainly post-March when JobKeeper finishes. Indeed, that's what happens. Um, but how are you? Are you generally feeling optimistic about the summer to come and, and onward? Uh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd definitely say so. Like, I think just seeing you know cases were once again I think zero today, which is terrific news. Um, and I think like seeing you know what's what's made me somewhat optimistic as well was just seeing how optimistic everyone was to once again be able to do more activities so you know whether it's other visiting families and and friends and going to restaurants and so on so i i do feel for us being suburban restaurants has been in some ways and actually not being big restaurants like both can normally do about 70 covers normally uh and we're lucky to have multiple rooms so you know we've been in a position that we've been able to adapt and there's almost a sense that people at the moment uh, prefer to stay local and support local. Like they're not going to venture into the city just yet to go for a meal, but they'll happily come to the wine bar and have a few snacks and a glass of wine and and so on. But I, I, I'm pretty optimistic that if we can manage the pandemic and keep numbers fairly low like um, Sydney, New South Wales has done, for example, that there's no reason that you know we can have a, a great summer uh, businesses a lot of businesses can get back up and running and you know hopefully people can use the opportunity as we've had you know as we've had to adapt so much and keep doing the same and do it with um with a good attitude i guess you know create awesome outdoor spaces you know get musician out on the street playing some music just do it'll be different to what it was but let's you know make it fun and have a good vibe about it I guess yeah I reckon if you're a Victorian restaurateur like nothing will ever be harder <laughs> you're just you're so good at adapting and innovating and what could you what what bigger mountain could you try to climb than the one that you've already climbed scaled and just yeah owned so yeah. Um, Pierre, you've mentioned writing a list a couple of times and I would just love to um, finish by asking you about your list because I'm such a believer in writing down a list of things to do. It always makes me feel so much calmer. But I would just love you to, I'd love to know exactly what sort of lists do you write like, and how do you divvy it up between all the different people? Yeah, so pre like it's pretty basic, and I think like funnily enough, I'd worked a few years at um, Hotel Gitan, which is the Ramond Children's rest one of their restaurants, and it was actually their youngest uh, son, Antoine Ramond, who got me onto the whole list thing, because that was his thing to do, and this was when we were doing the opening for their venue, and he was like, 
there's literally so much going on that if you remember 75% of what needs to be done, you're, you're going to forget a bunch of other things. And so his thing was always to, you know, essentially write a list and just tick things off as you do them. And I guess in many ways, that's what we've done where we've gotten together and it's like, okay, what needs to be done? And it's setting up the reservation system. We need to put new items in the menu. Uh, we need to, you know, wash all the glasses in the, in the bar. We need to wipe down all the plates. We need to do a deep clean. Uh, we need to order wines. And essentially, once you've written everything that you need to do, we looked at it with every, all the stuff in there for each business and then allocated jobs in a, in a way that, you know, whoever was the most skilled person to do that task would take it on and and just chipped at it and tick things off as we went through it until everything was done and then threw the doors open. Wow, so good. I will just pass on my piece of advice for anybody writing a list is that it is perfectly acceptable to write something that you've already done on the list and then cross it off. And that is that is always a good start to a list. Definitely makes you feel better. <laughs> Uh, Pierre, thank you so much for coming along and having a chat. Um, I really appreciate it. And yeah, good on you for getting all your staff through uh, this second lockdown. It's a massive achievement. Um, and yeah, I really wish you the most amazing summer as you look after your local neighbourhoods and give them beautiful food, great wine in the correct glassware and of course, amazing cocktails. Sounds good. And thank you so much, Danny. Really appreciate the time to speak with you and um, definitely a big thank you as well for everything that you've done for the industry. All right, I'll see you for a drink soon. Thanks, Pierre. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production.